If you'd open your Bibles to Lamentations chapter 2. Father, as we continue our study here in the book of Lamentations, we ask, Lord, that you enable us, Father, because at times it can seem a bit tedious for us because we are, we are weak and we easily lose focus. And Father, in this short book, we are overwhelmed with the judgment of God on Israel. And so, Father, we pray that you would enable us to once again, glean those things from this that are profitable for us, knowing, Lord, that your word is beneficial to our lives. And so, Father, we thank you again for preserving your word for us. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Lamentations chapter 2, I'll begin reading in verse 11. My eyes are spent with weeping, my stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread, where is wine? And they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you or to what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea, who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen, you, have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. In this, the city that was called, is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty? The joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss. They gnash their teeth. They cry. We have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we longed for. Now we have it. We see it. The Lord has done what he proposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night, at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see. With whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side, and on the day of anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held, I raised my enemy, destroyed. Again, you can see this very serious lamentation that's delivered by Jeremiah and what he sees going on to really the people of God, to, on the nation of Israel. 
Again, Lamentations is a reminder that sin carries with it the consequences of sorrow, grief, misery, and pain. It's just a lesson that we just, we cannot allow that to escape our minds. It's not the most popular message there is, uh, but that is one that is necessary for us to understand the world in which we live in, to understand ourselves, and to have a better understanding of the gospel. Again, remember that in this judgment on the nation, as we think about how we are going to apply this to our lives, we know that judgment is sure for the unbeliever. There are warnings and warnings and warnings and opportunities given to non-believers to repent and to turn from their wicked ways. Romans makes it clear that all those who've not even heard the gospel know that God exists. They know that. They know that God is angry about sin. They know that. And they suppress that truth. I am convinced when you read the Romans 1 that God takes on the responsibility to himself that if an individual responds properly to general revelation, they will hear the gospel. But the bottom line is, is that the scripture still makes it clear that when we die, when, a, when an individual dies in unbelief, they have no excuse. In other words, there is no one that they can point the finger to, including God, and say, I'm here and I didn't receive the gospel because of you or because you failed. They, they can never do that. I mean, they, they can, but it's untrue. And that should cause us to shudder. For those of us who are believers, we need to recognize that God's stance towards sin never changes. God hates it. He hated it in you when you were a non-believer, and he hates it in you when you're a believer. The difference would be is, is the word I try to make sure I use consistently, though I know I don't, and that is to make sure we understand as believers that when God comes against us, it is his discipline. But you know, all I know is that my dad disciplined me. It still hurt. There's a lot of pain there. And God was, as, as my father was trying to teach me. And so we, just, we need to recognize that as we, as we read and, and look at these things. I think that um, what we need, to, we need to remember is uh, what he says early on here when he says this. He says, your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes but have seen, your, foreseen for you oracles that are false and misleading. So Israel is caught up in the throes of her sinfulness. In particular, idolatry, but, but there's a lot of things that go along with that. And we'll cover this again, but basically what he says here, what the prophets have failed to do, is, first of all, they have seen visions, false and deceptive visions, whether it's something like uh, the prophets are saying, you're doing well, all is going to be okay, what you're doing is not that bad, or you are blessed, or whatever, whatever the case may happen to be, that, that's what they are presenting. And he says here that they have not exposed your iniquity. So Israel's sin should have been exposed by the prophets, and that wasn't done. And he says here that if they had done that, he says they have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, because that would have led to repentance, that would have led to a restoration but they didn't do that. Now, even though the focus there is on the prophets there, 
again, God is also holding the individual responsible. You and I basically have a vision of ourselves and of our future. We, we see ourselves often better than we are. There's sometimes we may, we may see ourselves accurately. We need help uh, from the word of God to see ourselves accurately, but sometimes we're guilty of the same thing. And, and we should, in one sense, reveal our iniquity to ourselves so that our fortunes can be restored. And, and we're going to be looking at that today. In verses 11 and 12, going back through the text, Jeremiah had exhausted his capacity for weeping and sorrowing over the destruction of his people. He was drained emotionally. In the ESV, it says, my bile is poured out. That really is a very gross but accurate translation. He, he's trying to communicate the extent here. The extent of his sorrow is basically he is spent. There's nothing left. I think it would be like this, saying that he, he even though he may be weeping, there's no more tears. That's, it's, it's, it's gone. There's, there's, there's maybe no voice left to wail because of how bad things are. And again, as we have seen over and over again, where it's emphasized, there is no one to comfort. It just doesn't end. This, this destruction goes on and on. It comes in waves. So when he says, my heart is, my bile is poured out, or my heart is poured out, Literally, the, the translation could read, my liver is poured out. We don't use the word liver that way. But the idea in the Hebrew language and the Hebrew people is the liver was regarded as a very deep seat of emotion because it's deep inside the body. It tells us here that what Jeremiah observed was small children and infants basically fainting in the streets because they don't have anything to eat or drink. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm, conv I'm convinced this is true of us. That if we were in an area maybe trying to bring relief and you saw infants passing out because of a lack of food and drink, that would deeply affect you. you, you panic might set in. We have to do something more now. We look at what's happening. It is because that's just a, a picture to us of just absolute desperation. Children dying in their, in their mother's arms because of lack of nourishment. I've seen photos of places... Uh, throughout the world where, there's, where starvation is taking place, I've seen photos of women holding their infant and the infant's dead. I don't know how to relate to that. I, it's, I know it's, it's a horrible thing. But the reason why this is important and, and it should be vivid for us, and this is where, you know, there's some things about God that uh, are disturbing, and it should be. Because God hate, we have to understand the seriousness of sin. This is orchestrated by God. And can you imagine looking at a mother holding her dead infant and knowing God did that and that God was absolutely justified in what he did? It, it doesn't match too often our picture of God. It, and it, it, it's not, it should not lead us to hate God. That's not, that's not the proper response. But we are so often caught up in our image of what we think God should be and what God is like. And again, things related to that, which is what really is sin? Who are we in relation to God? What is holiness? What is purity? What does God want? 
Now then what's missing from the picture is joy. That doesn't come to mind when you see that, that God actually wants you and I to have great joy, but not at the expense of his holiness. And here, he's, he's, he's not going to let it go by. Jerusalem then, for its history of being a place of beauty and commerce, Jerusalem was a place of starvation. Verse 13 says, What can I say for you? To, to what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? It's the first time in the book that the narrator speaks directly to the daughter of Jerusalem, basically. Jeremiah struggles to find the adequate words to comfort his people because the ruin has been so devastating. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that where an individual, someone else is experiencing a great loss, a sudden great loss. There, there is nothing you can say. Nothing. You, you can grieve with them is all you can do. There are no words of comfort. They do not exist. Remember once I was called um, in the middle of the night um, when I was a chaplain at the jail, and I'm not sure how this whole thing was arranged, but there was a, I think what it was, there was a young man who worked at the jail, and he was driving down Victory Drive, and he wrapped his car around a palm tree, and they wanted me to be there when the police officers <coughs> told his family that he was dead. And so he lived with his mom and with his sister, and you know, the, the grief is very difficult to describe what they experienced because he was young, he was in his 20s, so this was unexpected. There's, there's no way to prepare yourself for something like this. And of course, I, I don't know them, and they don't know me. And we know that being together as human beings is important. So what do you say? There's nothing to say. That's what Jeremiah is expressing to us here. There may be times in our lives under the, under the discipline of God, there's just no words. That's just not what we're used to thinking about when it comes to the Christian life. I'm not trying to paint a picture of the Christian life that, that this is it. But this is an aspect of it. This is something that we need to understand. Sometimes what happens is even if you're sharing the gospel with an individual, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but every now and then there are individuals that I have seen when you can tell that they're really grasping the gospel and they are struck with their own sinfulness. And there are times, because you may not know everything about the person, they're struck in a very deep way because they know what they've done. And they are under very serious, deep conviction. And I know the temptation is for us to immediately say, it's going to be okay, don't, don't worry. No. They need to experience the depth of that grief and sin against God. They need to experience that. That's, that's important. And so sometimes we, sometimes we bring comfort too quick. Now, I'm not saying, you know, get a stopwatch out and try to figure out how. I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is just don't panic when you see someone in, in, under deep conviction and try to comfort too quickly. Allow it to come in a sense in a natural way. Allow them to go through that. No, I'm not saying allow them to go through it for days and days. I'm not saying that. 
But what I'm saying is, is that yes, we have the comfort of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he does forgive and he does save and he does heal. He does all of those things. But don't be in such a hurry, even for yourself, if you come under deep conviction of sin. Maybe we shouldn't look for relief too quickly. Because that can sometimes lead to cynicism. Right? We're looking for relief like right now. Like I've suffered enough. God is the one who determines what we need to suffer. Because he wants to make sure that the lesson sinks in. That the lesson is learned. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to have to learn the same lesson again. I want to get it the first time or the second time, whatever it is that's going on. And so what we see being expressed here is, again, the depth of the seriousness of, of this judgment of God that's come upon the people. We see it being described for us. And here's Jeremiah, who is a, who is a proper prophet, who's done the right thing, who knows God, walks with God, and he is completely overwhelmed by what he sees. Again, comfort was beyond the scope of human words because the devastation that they were experiencing was unparalleled. No human being could heal her. Really, only the Lord could. And so Jerusalem, there was also a place of no comfort. As I mentioned to you earlier, when we first uh, read through the verses, the false prophets is what they were. They had misled the people. They had not told them the truth that, they would have, that would have led them to return to God and spared them from captivity. They were still failing the people after Jerusalem fell. After Jerusalem had fallen to, to Babylon and this was going on, these prophets still were, were messing up and not saying the right thing. What is clear is that instead of exposing sin so it could be dealt with, they just painted over it to hide it from view. And that was really the, the, the gravest mistake or most egregious error that they were guilty of. Again, verse 14, your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen you for oracles that are false and misleading. Jerusalem was a place of perverted leadership, and they were suffering as, even more so as a result. In chapter 1 of this, of this book, Jerusalem was calling out to pastors, those who were passing by, to observe and to grieve over her sorrow. But now we see that the reaction of these observers was not sorrow, it was both shock and mockery. Those who were passing by expressed their amazement at Jerusalem's great destruction. They could hardly believe that it had been such a beautiful and happy place. The enemies of Judah rejoiced to see the evidence of her fall. In fact, they took pride in seeing her destruction. And so we came across those terms that Jeremiah used. They clap their hands, they hiss, they shake their heads. All of those are terms that are normally associated with mocking. So there was this mocking and kind of rejoicing. They were glad with what was happening. You know, when, when, when that which is righteous or that which is viewed as being righteous falls, those who are evil rejoice. They're happy about that. Jerusalem's destruction, again, was the fulfillment uh, of what God had said long ago. He told his people this might come. Again, he was ultimately responsible for it. He had shown no mercy in judging, but instead has strengthened Judah's enemies against her, and it caused him to rejoice, uh, Judah's enemies to rejoice at the city's overthrow. And so Jerusalem was also a place of mocking enemies. 
And then in verse 18 it says, Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Jerusalem, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. And so Jeremiah is calling on Judah's citizens, calling on her, her, her children to mourn perpetually because of the destruction that God had brought on her. The people should cry out to God without ceasing. They should ask him to spare their children who were dying of starvation. Since he had inflicted such a deep wound on the people, he was the only one who could heal it. So he, Jeremiah is giving him the right thing. Turn to God. Yes, God had brought this on them for her sin. Turn to God to deliver you. The same way that when we come under deep conviction of sin, it's God who is bringing the misery. It is to God that we turn to find relief. It is to him we find forgiveness. It's him we find healing. There is nothing any human being can do for you in all of this. Jeremiah was a place of ceaseless wailing. Some have asked this question when they read about the children dying. How could God allow innocent children to suffer because of the sins of their parents? Maybe there's a better question. Maybe the question should be this. How could parents continue to sin knowing that God would inevitably judge them and their children? That's the question. Jeremiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. Therefore, I am full of the wrath of the Lord. I am weary of holding it in. Pour it out upon the children in the street and upon the gatherings of young men also. Both husband and wife shall be taken, the elderly and the very aged. So how could they do that to their children? They had been warned. They had been told. And yet they ignored it. And they persisted in their sin. So then in verses 20 and 22, we have a prayer. We see in this prayer really a, a strong protest against God. Jeremiah, if he's the one praying or if the people are praying, I don't think there's an accusation against God for sinning. So, this, so even though it's a protest, it's not, it's not accusing God of sin. But it's still, it's a protest. It's a way of, of God, we need your mercy. God, this is overwhelming God, how, in a sense, how could you do this? You know the answer, but you're, you're just without words to be able to express your heart. It's a strong protest. They don't like what they see. Look, O Lord, and see. With whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women, my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. And those whom I held and raised... 
my enemy destroyed. And so in this despair, it's, it's a pleading to God, look at this. It's a rhetorical question, and it's just a way of expressing anguish. But I want you, if you would, to turn to 1 Corinthians 11 for a moment. 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to end with this. So we can heed what is said, I think, in chapter 2, verse 14 of Lamentations. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is writing to Christians. God has been disciplining the church in Corinth. Uh, some of them have, have died. Some of them are sick. And he says in verse 31 of chapter 11, But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. The reason why he says we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world, the idea is the world is under the wrathful judgment of God. We are saved individuals. God is going to discipline us. And he's going to discipline us because we are his children. God must deal with our sin. We are, in one sense, made examples of, of that God is serious about sin and that he's not playing favorites, but he's also pursuing the image of Christ in us. But again, the key for this, for you and I, is, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. What a fantastic phrase. Again, there was sickness and death. So the solution that Paul is giving them is self-examination, self-discipline, and promoting of unity. The alternative was God's judging, which was a discipline that they were then experiencing. When we do our prayer of confession, that's, that's part of it. We, we, the goal is for us to judge ourselves truly as a, as a congregation, as a, as a group of believers. And we also do this as individuals. I don't know about you, but... I'm really in favor of finding ways to escape the judgment of God. Not to get away with things, because that's not the path. The path is not to get away with my sin. The path is to face my sin, to acknowledge my sin, to seek to change from my sin. And God, it says, if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Man, I like that. I'm in favor of that. We must examine our own hearts. We must judge our sins. We must confess them to the Lord. To partake of the Lord's Supper with unconfessed sin in our lives is to be guilty of Christ's body and blood. For it was sin that nailed him to the cross. That's what Paul says as he goes on in this chapter dealing with, that, with, with uh, the Lord's table, what had been happening at this church. If we will not judge our own sins, then God will judge us and chasten us until we do confess and forsake our sins. We fail to examine ourselves, but we are experts at examining everybody else. I guess if we're going to live by that, then go ahead and stand up and ask others to go ahead and judge you so you know what to confess. You might be amazed at what you hear. I'm not going to do that. I don't want to hear it. I'm going to stick with judging myself and let the Lord deal with me. I don't want to go through that kind of an embarrassment. But we are, you know, some of us are more active in doing that than others. Usually it's done in our head. You know, we don't always say it. But we do need to remember this. 
Chastening is God's loving way of dealing with his sons and daughters to encouraging them to mature. I mean, it's what our parents did. I know my parents didn't rejoice because they got to punish me that day. I know they weren't happy about that. But I do know they wanted me to grow up and to, and to be mature and responsible. That's what they were trying to achieve. I'm sure my stiff-neckedness and my stubbornness and all of that probably caused them to wonder if it was ever going to take. And in some areas, it probably took a while. But you know, kids are human beings. Kids are grown-ups who haven't grown up yet. What I'm trying to get at is what's in them is in us. We're maybe a little more sophisticated in our stubbornness, a little more sophisticated in our excuses. So my plead to you, my encouragement to you, whether it's today or throughout this week, or maybe over several days, is examine your life. Don't just look at the obvious things. Don't just, don't sit there in your pride and say, well, I don't commit adultery. I don't look at pornography. I don't steal from others. I don't lie to my boss. I'm good. I'm glad all that's true. Are you pursuing righteousness? Are you doing that? Are you pursuing holiness? Are you striving to encourage your wife or your husband to grow in the Lord? That doesn't mean you're preaching at them. We're going to mess that up some. But generally, are you doing that? Are you praying for people in your family who don't know Christ? Are you, are you, are you pursuing Christ with all of your heart? Those are the things that we need to examine because God is going to judge us. He doesn't just judge us for the sins of adultery. Remember, he was judging Israel for idolatry. When you do a proper study of idolatry, what you're going to come to realize is all of us practice idolatry today because it is anything that has our attention, anything that has our devotion, anything. It doesn't mean that you're falling down and bowing before it and worshiping it. But what, what is it that guides and directs you in making your decisions? When I was a young man, when I thought football was everything, you know, I declared myself to be a Christian, but this is the way I made all of my decisions. All of my decisions were made in reference to me playing that game. Now, there's nothing wrong with me being committed to that, but every decision I made was in reference to that. There was no consideration given to what God thought about anything. None. And so that's kind of, that, that can happen to us very easily throughout the week. And so, in fact, when you judge yourselves or when you examine yourself this week, ask the Lord to help you, to be honest with yourself, to see yourself, and, and, to, and to see yourself for who you are and where you're at. I believe it can, be a, it can be a wonderful, in one sense, cleansing experience. Not that I'm looking for the cleansing experience in a new age way, but a cleansing in the sense that we repent and we turn from our sins. Let's pray. Father in heaven, all of us here today, I think, can say that when we read Lamentations, we never want to experience anything like this in our lives. We don't want to see it. We don't want to hear it. We don't want to go through it. Father, we understand that we may not go through these things ourselves in this kind of detail because of our sin, but nonetheless, 
We know, Lord, that you do discipline those who belong to you. And we can never predict what form of discipline you will use for our sake. But I pray, Lord, you would help us to have a proper and, and a, a correct evaluation and understanding of the truth of who you are. I pray, Lord, you would help us to examine ourselves. Help us, Father, to come clean before you and to repent. I pray, Lord, that for those who do so, that I ask that you would give them great, a great measure of mercy and grace. Grace that they may pursue you with all of their heart, mind, and soul. Grace that they may be strengthened to turn away from their sin. Grace, Lord, that they may recover emotionally if they are gripped by a sense of guilt. I pray, Lord, that you will be gracious and kind to them and that you will lift them up and that you will restore them. And Father, we don't want to pray a curse on anyone. But Father, I think we can individually pray this, that if I ignore my sin, I pray, Lord, you would do what's necessary to bring it to my attention. I pray, Lord, you would cause me to strongly desire to come clean. I pray, Lord, that if you come against me in discipline, that you would do so with mercy and pray that you would help to open my eyes that I may see early on the air of my way and turn from them so that, Father, I may not have to go through the depths of sorrow as Jeremiah has experienced here. Restore to us, Father, our joy. And, Father, for those here today, perhaps there have been some who have already have got, they've gone through this. They're coming out of it on the other side. And I pray, Lord, you would increase their joy, that they would experience much happiness, that, Father, there would be a, a real renewed spirit within them and a great love for you. Because, Lord, as the Scripture says, those who have been forgiven much love much. And, Father, we know all of us that need to be forgiven of a great deal. And we need to love you and we want to love you a great deal. As Lord, that will lift our hearts more than anything else. And Father, more than anything, for the individual here today who may not know Christ, ah, Father, we pray that you would enable them to feel the burden of their sin. And we ask, Lord, that they would find no relief from that until they come to Christ. Until they turn to you for forgiveness. Father, we thank you for forgiving us. And we thank you that you judged Christ for our sin. We thank you that we will be spared the great judgment that is coming. And that we will be blessed to be with you for all of eternity. What a marvelous and incredible gift that is. We rejoice in your name. And we do thank you and ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.